We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ, and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Well, Amy didn't understand what was wrong with her. She had read so many articles in her favorite magazine about uh, the, the best ways to please your partner sexually, and yet, and yet she'd been through four or five breakups recently, despite doing everything that society told her to do sexually. And she began to wonder if there was something wrong with her. And Brad, as, as many times as he had prayed for God to take it away, he still wrestled with same-sex desires and attraction. And he was terrified of telling his pastor, let alone his parents, because he was afraid of what they would think, what they would say. And, and he, he wanted to pursue Christ, but, but he didn't know how to have these kinds of conversations about the things that he was dealing with in life. And he didn't know how people would respond. And Joe, he, he, he tried so hard to make his wife happy. He, he worked hard at work, and, and he dedicated his time to providing for their family. And, and no matter what he did, it seemed like she always had something negative to say about him. She always had something to nag him about it, whether it was his, his shoes being on inside the house and on, on her carpet, or, or maybe it was uh, him spending too much time at work, and he's just frustrated because he's thinking, I'm doing this for you and the kids. And, and Jamie, you know, possibly one of the most heartbreaking of all, she, she didn't even feel like she was in the right body. She, she, growing up, she, she didn't like the Barbie dolls or the pink dresses, and, and, and most of her friends were boys, and she really liked hanging out with the boys and, and really got along with them better, felt like she understood them more, and, and she began to wonder as she got older, maybe there's something wrong with, with me, with my body. Maybe, maybe that's what's wrong. Maybe that's why I don't feel peace. Maybe something in me, maybe something about me physically needs to change so that I can finally have happiness in life. You see, we live in a culture where there is so much confusion, like we talked about last week, about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And as Christians and as the church, we have got to be a safe place to have these conversations where we have an honest conversation about what it is that God has to say to us about what it means to be a man and a woman. Because he has a plan and he has a design and, and there's also something that's gone wrong with the design, right? So we've been looking at Genesis chapter one for several weeks now and we've been looking recently at the image of God and how being created in God's image made, means that we're made in his likeness with inherent value, dignity, and worth, and we're made in his image to reflect who he is to a broken, fallen world. And so we have to be able to have these conversations. And so last week we looked at how men and women are created by God as equal in terms of their value, dignity, and worth. And then this week we're looking at how men and women are created by God as different. 
And so as we do that, I want to just highlight a couple of resources for you, because I know we won't have time to dive into several of these issues that we're talking about today and the kind of depth that we need to. And if you're looking for more information or you have questions, I want to point you in a couple directions where you can find more information on how to help people in your life, how to, how to understand these things yourself. And so we're going to talk about three different things today, Lord willing, as, as we go through it together. We're going to talk about what it means to be men and women in marriage, so how God has made us different in terms of our function and our roles in the marriage relationship. We're also going to talk about sexuality and how God has made us to be fruitful and multiply, and then we'll hopefully be able to talk some about our identity as male and female, how that's who God has made us to be. And so just want to point you to a couple of resources uh, so that you can look at these things more. The first is called The Grand Design. So this is about what we call uh, biblical complementarity, how men and women are made in the image of God, but they're also made different in terms of their function and roles. And this kind of just lays out how that plays out in our relationships. So if you have questions about how uh, uh, male and female are to interact in marriage, this is a great resource. And all these will be up here on the table at the end for you to look through if you'd like to. Don't take them because they're mine and I will find you. Okay? So, um, <laughs> I'm only a little bit kidding, you know? So, <laughs> I'm serious now. Um, in terms of homosexuality, I know a lot of these issues are controversial and difficult topics to discuss, but there's two great books. If you have a friend, and I promise you, you do, even if they haven't told you yet. I promise you, you have someone in your life that struggles with same-sex attraction, and you need to know as a Christian how to interact with them, how to help them, and how to love them well. And so I would first point you to The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. This is Rosaria Butterfield's testimony. She was a professor at Syracuse University in the LGBTQ department and uh, an activist for LGBTQ rights and came to Christ and then is one of the leading uh, spokespersons for biblical gender and sexuality and how to understand these issues. So I would point you to her testimony, her story in this book. And then the other one would be Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Alberry. He's a pastor in the UK who follows after Christ, believes that homosexuality is sinful, and yet struggles with same-sex desire and walks towards holiness, pursuing Christ, and, and helps others to do so as well. Um, and then probably the most difficult topic for us right now, because it's the newest and it's the hardest for us to think through, is the issue of uh, transgender issues, of gender identity, gender confusion. And so there's a great book by Andrew Walker called God and the Transgender Debate. So if you have questions about that, I would point you here first. Um, it's a great resource. Has a, it'll have a lot of answers to a lot of questions, and it'll be a blessing to you. With that said, let's dive into Genesis chapter 1. So open your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, we're looking at verses 26 through 28, where we talk about the, where Moses talks about the image of God. Here's what we read. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Would you pray with me one more time? God, we are humbled before you as both sufferers and sinners who struggle in a difficult, broken world with all sorts of issues regarding who we are as men and women, God, we need your help. We need your grace. We need your clarity and understanding to see who we are in light of who you've made us to be. And so, God, would you help us right now as we begin to talk about some of these things? Would you guide our conversation? Would you help us to understand what it is you're saying to us and about us so that we might live for your glory and the good of all peoples? In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we talked about uh, the image of God and how men and women are created by God to be equal, right? So we talked about the idea of likeness, how in the ancient Near East this would have referred to this idea that uh, kings were the sons of the gods they represented, right? And so they had this natural honor and glory conveyed on them by whatever deity they represented, And in the Bible, we've seen how likeness and sonship, the idea of being a son of someone, are associated in the early chapters of Genesis. You read that in Genesis 5. And then in Psalm chapter 8, we saw how God himself has conveyed on humanity glory and honor that only comes from him. And so we're made in his likeness with dignity, value, and worth. And this is both men and women. We talked about how there's no superiority introduced in the early chapters of Scripture or anywhere else in Scripture. There's no hierarchy introduced where men are better than women. It's not a biblical idea. It's a twisting of the Scriptures and what they mean to say that. So we spent a few minutes last week talking about this idea, and then we talked about how we're made in God's image as well, both men and women, whether married or single, Whatever arena of life that plays out in, whether it's the workplace, your home, your career, your finances, whatever it might be for you, you're made by God himself to image and reflect who he is as his representatives. And so this is the idea of the image of God, that we're made with inherent value, dignity, and worth in his likeness, and that we're made by God to represent God to represent his rule and reign on the earth that is redemptive, benevolent, and good. And so this week we're looking at how God created men and women to be different. And so in verse verse 27 of Genesis chapter one, we read this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then he says, male and female, he created them. And so we talked about that transition between this singular idea of describing man or humanity, right? And how we've always described ourselves this way. We've always described ourselves this way. Even the words we use to describe who man is, humanity, has the word man in it, right? And it's not getting at this idea that men are better than women. It's just getting at the idea that we're describing our race, right? And so we've always described men and women this way, getting at their similarity and their distinctness or difference through the terminology we use to describe ourselves. So we think about how in the word women is the word men, right? And in the word woman is the word man. And in the word female is the word male, right? And so what this communicates to us is that men and women are inherently similar and inherently different. Does that make sense? 
They're, they're similar and they're the same in some sense. And so what we talked about that meaning is that they're made in God's image with inherent value, dignity, and worth. And it's equal value, dignity, and worth, right? We have equal status and standing before the God who created us. And this week we're looking at how it's also God's intention and plan for us as men and women to be different in a lot of ways that complement one another and that declare who he is. And as we represent him, these differences are beautiful and good and right. And so even the language we use to describe ourselves communicates this similarity and this difference between us. And these are good things. In fact, Moses makes a specific point to say that God created both male and female, right? He talks about God creating man or humanity, the race, right? And then he talks about how specifically he, he spells that out and he says God created him male and female. He created them. And in an ancient world context, this would have been radical, right? Because in the ancient world, we read about things where, where women weren't even allowed to testify in court. And so from the beginning of Scripture and throughout, we see this this inherent value, dignity, and worth placed on women as created in God's image. See, feminists think that they were the first to value women and and really uh, advocate for them. God was. God, from the beginning, has valued both genders as equally made in his image to represent who he is. And so our differences are just as intentional and they matter because Moses spells it out for us that he, he includes this in the first chapter of the Bible for a reason that we would see that it's important to know that God has created both men and women in his image. Those differences are intentional and they matter. And we know this difference is inherently part of us, right? So we, we know this when we see certain things. So we hear phrases like, I think, Randy Stinson says this to his sons all the time. He's a professor at Southern and a vice president there, and I love this phrase. He teaches all his sons, the boy goes down so the girl goes free. And he tells this story of how uh, one day he was working in his office, and he had this, this view of the street, and he sees his little boy just trucking down the hill in his wagon, and, and he knows that impact is inevitable, and there's no way out of this for him, and that he's going to lose control very soon, and there's going to be a bad wreck. And so he's starting to get up to watch where the impact happens so he can run out there and make sure he's alive and such. And then he sees this little girl on her tricycle start to pedal out in front of him. So his boy's coming down the hill and this little girl is starting to pedal out in front of him and he's like, oh no, this is worse than I imagined. And all of a sudden he sees his son throw his wagon over so that he crashes on purpose. And he tumbles head over heels and rolls and rolls and scrapes his face up and and Randy and his wife run out there to check on him. He's bleeding stuff and, and they're checking on him and he looks up at his dad and he says, Dad, the boy goes down so the girl goes free. And we praise that, right? That's good and right. He taught his son a good thing, right? And, and whenever we see this in culture, we, we, we praise it as well. Whenever men lay their lives down, whenever there's a mass shooting or something like that, in the protection of their wife and children, we see it as a good thing. 
We don't get mad that the woman couldn't lay her life down for her man. Right? That's never the outrage. We praise men who lay their lives down for the benefit of women. We know there's something different about how God has made us to function. And it's not anything different about who we are in terms of superiority or inferiority. It's, it's something about how he's, he's made us in his image as valuable, but then different in terms of our roles and functions. There's something different about that, us that is wired into who he's made us to be. And so we see this in... It, it, you know, we see kind of the madness of our culture when we think about our military, right? So instead of having that view of manhood and womanhood, we have this different view culturally where, where we ought to send women into combat to die for us. And, and we know that it's wrong because whenever we have <laughs> military members who are responsible for the training procedures for these elite units that are sent into the hardest places to fight our wars for us and our battles for us, they talk about how they've had to lower the standards in terms of physical requirements for women to be a part of these elite units. And again, we're not talking about women being devalued in any way, shape, or form, right? We've already talked about how God has made women, men and women equal in terms of their status, value, dignity, and worth. But he's also made them different physically. He's also made them different in terms of the roles they're meant to function in. And whenever we think about that, you know, it's tempting to think that saying that we shouldn't send women into those kinds of elite units and combat roles, that, that that should be off limits to women. We kind of think as though we're devaluing women. to say that. And friends, in reality, it is valuing the differences between men and women when we say that. It's not a devaluing of who women are made to be in the image of God to reflect his likeness and glory to say that they shouldn't be the ones going out and dying for their country. That they shouldn't be the ones in these elite military units so that we shouldn't lower the standard requirements for those so that we can have both men and women involved in it. It's not a devaluing of one gender. It's a valuing of the differences that God has wired into us. And it's a, a valuing of who women are and a desire to protect that and value that. Because listen, if, if we continue down this track, then eventually the result is that, you know, if there's ever a need for the draft, then there's no distinction. If there's no distinction between men and women, then both men and women will have to register for that and be sent by their country. Are you dragging with that? Like most of us would, would, would think that it's ridiculous to make our 18-year-old women who are girls trying to learn what it means to be a woman as they grow into adulthood to say, okay, now you've got to go to war. That's crazy. But it's the inevitable result in saying that there's no differences between men and women. See, friends, we can be equal in our value, dignity, and worth and different in our role and function. And that's okay. That's God's design for us. So let's talk about how that plays out in marriage for a moment. In Ephesians chapter five, if you wanna turn there, we're gonna be there for just a moment. 
Here's what Paul says. Chapter five, verse one. So we're gonna start in verse one and two and then jump down to verse 22. Or verse 21, sorry. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Did you notice the language that Paul just used there in Ephesians 5, verse 1? He said, be imitators of God, right? What's that make you think of? Makes you think of Genesis 1, right? We're, we're imagers of God. This is who he's made us to be. And then he says, as beloved children. So we talked about that idea of sonship and being made in the likeness of God and how those ideas are together in Scripture. And so Paul is, is in a very real way, displaying for us something about what it's going to look like to image and reflect who God is. This is his command at the beginning of chapter five. This is, and at the end of chapter five is this famous distilling of the roles of men and women in the marriage relationship. And oftentimes we skip down there without looking at what Paul is saying in the beginning of the chapter to all of us, that we're to be imitators of God as beloved children, walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so Paul is addressing all of us, whether we're married or single, he's saying, be imitators of God, live in a loving way that, that involves sacrifice, and reflect who your God is in this way. And then he gets into the roles and how this is going to play out. So in, let's start in verse 21 before we jump into the roles, and I just want to read this for you, and then we'll talk about the different parts of it. Paul says in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he's concluding a section there and talks about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, worship for who God is. And then he goes into the roles. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis 2, which we'll get to here in a few weeks. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you Love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So we mentioned briefly last week, as Paul gets to the end of that section where he lays out the roles of men and women in the marriage covenant, he again talks about imaging God, right? So beginning of chapter 5, he talks about being imitators of God as his children, and then at the end of chapter 5, he says this about marriage. He says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so... We talked about this in our Ephesians series called Brought Together, how whenever we got to this section of scripture, we talked about how God has given the, this a, a divine drama to us to kind of play out and represent who he is in different ways. 
And so men are called to lay their lives down for their wives and for their benefit or their good, and women are called to submit to their husbands, showing the kind of humility and deference that Christ showed to his own father. And in both these ways, we image and reflect who God is and his way of relating to us as his people. So we talked about how marriage is not primarily about you and your spouse, it's about God. The reason that we obey God in terms of our marriage roles and the way that we function in marriage is not so that we can say, oh, well, I got the authority in our relationship, you know, I wear the pants. It's to lovingly, through sacrifice and submission, it's to lovingly show something of who God is to our spouse and to the world. Your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is about the God who made you. And so we have different roles in marriage. So let's just talk for a minute about that. And, and singles, I just want to address you real quick. We, we talked about last week how marriage is not the ideal or God's definite plan for your life, how singleness is a good thing as well. And we looked at 1 Corinthians 7 and looked at that idea and how God has made us both married and single as image bearers of God to reflect who he is. And so when we read in Ephesians 5 verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children, you're there as well. So I know we're talking about marriage for a minute, but I don't want you to hear this as though it's not relevant to you or not talking about who, you're, who you are as the image bearer of God. You are valuable, made to represent who God is in a lot of different ways. We just need to address these different roles in marriage. So here's the idea of biblical complementarity. It's this idea that men and women are equal in essence, but distinct in role. And so God created men and women in marriage to complement one another. And so again, we talked about you know, just what Randy Stinson is instilling in his sons, the idea that the girl, go, the, sorry, that's bad. The boy goes down, so the girl goes free, right? That's the idea here. And so let's talk about husbands for a minute. Men reflect who God is through loving sacrifice, okay? And so we, we read just a minute ago in, in Ephesians 5 this idea, and then Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 3. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So I know that, ladies, you're not going to hear anything else about what Peter just said except for that weaker vessel part, so let's talk about that for a minute. What does Peter mean by that? He doesn't mean that you're weak and inferior. That's not what he's getting at. He's getting at the idea that you are valuable and that your husband should love you in a way that recognizes that. It's the, the idea of a weaker vessel is kind of this idea of a, of a beautiful, expensive vase that is meant to display something amazing. And we wouldn't pick up the vase and throw it like a football to our buddy, right? We don't throw it across the room. We live with our wives, men, in an understanding way, recognizing who God has made them to be and that that's a beautiful thing. The idea that she is different than you and that you sometimes don't understand her is not a bad thing. Men, she's made to compliment you and to show you something of who God is. Do you hear me there? Your wife is given to you by the God who made the universe so that you would see something of who he is. 
and that you might be changed in light of that. Women, it's the same for you. Your husband is not given to you, whether, and this is regardless of how great a spouse you have, right? Your spouse, whether they're lazy, ignorant, dumb, whatever, you know, kind of how you view them, they're still an image bearer of God made to reflect something of who God is, even though that image might have been distorted by the fall and by sin and, and there needs to be some redemption and some change, they're still made with inherent value, dignity, and worth. And so men and women in marriage, we've got to start seeing our spouse this way. And so men, this looks like living it with your wife in an understanding way, showing a kind of deference to her as you think about the way that you live life. And so men, like, often our, our temptation is like, you know, well, what I do to show sacrifice, sacrificial love to my wife is I work really hard. That's a great thing. That's one way that you can image and reflect who God is, that you're willing to make sacrifices for your family. That's a great thing. But living with your wife in an understanding way goes beyond that. Men, if we don't understand something about our wives emotionally, then we need to learn. So like, and, and I'm still trying to do this with, with Brittany, like I, I don't understand the way that she works sometimes, right? I, I'm confused by ways that she reacts to things and, and I don't get it and my temptation is to just kind of dive in and try and fix it all. Like if she's upset about something, my temptation, I promise you this, every single time is, man, I just start to try and dive in and fix it. I mean, living with our wives in an understanding way calls us to, by God's grace, by grace-driven effort, learn to understand, right? Not to fix, to understand. And man, I'd be the first to admit I'm a failure at this. I need God's grace to change me and help me, and Brittany would attest to that too. She'd be like... Yeah, she's probably praying, God, please help him, you know. And, but that's just reality. Men, we struggle with this. And, and the Holy Spirit knows it, so he wrote it in Scripture. Do you see that? God is calling you to a higher standard of love for your wife. This means if she is emotionally distraught, that you don't just try and fix it all. Man, sometimes there's an environment where, where there needs to be some, some solutions brought in. But first, you seek to understand and it means if, if she says there's something awry here, something you guys need to talk about, then you need to talk about it. Even if you don't see a problem, if she does, that means there's a problem, right? Like we have to live with our wives in an understanding way. This is what Christ has done for us, right? He, he came in the flesh. He was incarnate, like we talked about in our Christmas series, in our Advent series, how the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The reason he did that is so that he could be an understanding and faithful high priest. So that as he intercedes for us, he knows our temptations. He knows what we walk through in life. And so men, you image and reflect who God is when you walk and live in an understanding way with your wife and you lay down your preferences for hers. That's what biblical headship looks like. It doesn't look like getting your wife to do what you want. That is not your role. God has given you authority in the marriage relationship, men, so that you might use it for the benefit of your spouse. 
for her growth, for her holiness, for her beauty in Christ, that you might be pointing and encouraging her and her faith to him. That's why you're given your role in the marriage relationship, not to get what you want. It's for her good and her benefit and for the glory of God. And so ladies, let's, let's talk for just a minute. So I, Paul, Paul does this thing, and Peter does it too, where they address the women first. And like, today sometimes that just doesn't go well for us, you know? So I wanted to address the men first. Now let's talk, ladies, about what God is, how God has called you to image and reflect who he is. So women reflect who God is through loving submission. So men reflect who God is through loving sacrifice. Women reflect who God is through loving submission. And so let's talk about what this looks like. So in, in Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So notice, own husbands, not to men in general, and as to the Lord, right? So submission involves obedience to God, not to your husband. Does that make sense? Like, the, the reason that you submit to your husband is not because of your husband, it's because of God, right? This is how you relate to God, and relating to your husband in this way shows glory and deference to who God is and what he's called you to do, okay? So, so this means that even if your husband isn't perfect, even if he does some dumb things sometimes, you can still show glory to God by showing a humble deference to, to your husband and showing the love of Christ to him in that way. Then in 1 Peter 3, wives are addressed again. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And so ladies, you, you can't fix your husband by yelling and screaming back at him. It won't work. It never does, right? You've tried it. Like when, when we get in arguments with one another in marriage, we, we try fighting back, right? And when has that ever worked? God has laid out for us a better way, men and women in marriage, men laying their lives down in an understanding way, living with their wives, and then women showing a humble deference to, to their spouse as well through submission. And we do this out of love for God and love for our spouse as our closest neighbor, Right? So the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? And the second one is like it, Jesus said, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Paul and Peter are talking about. That's what sacrifice and submission look like. They look like loving our spouse in this way, in this Christ-like, God-honoring way. And so submission is an act of obedience to God by deferring to your husband that demonstrates the humility and love that we see in Christ. And we also see in verse 21 that submission is, is, is something all Christians are called to, right? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it's not just something women are called to do. This is something that we're all called to do in some arenas of life. And then Paul just kind of lays out different roles and different ways that that plays out. And we see that Jesus does this and in his incarnation. He submits to his Father's will and he exercises this kind of humility. And, and he is our model for this kind of love. And this is a, a willing submission, not a forced sub, subjugation. Okay? So it involves willingly obeying God, obeying Christ in your marriage role and responsibility. It's out of obedience to him, and it's a willful choice. It's not something that can be forced upon you. 
It's something you choose to do out of love for God and love for your spouse. And so men and women both image God and marriage through loving submission and sacrifice for the sake of one another. And then in sexuality, we see that God created men and women to be fruitful and multiply. So back in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, here's what we read. In, in verse 28, he gets down here and he says, and God blessed them, male and female, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So look at what God's first words to humanity are. Be fruitful and multiply. These are not only God's first words to humanity, they are his first blessing on humanity. Have sex. That's God's first words to humanity. That's translating that for our understanding, you know, contemporary English, like understanding what, what is God saying here? Be fruitful and multiply. He's saying have sex and have children, okay? That's what the Bible is telling us from the first chapter. And it's introduced in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman, and it's, it's God's design for humanity. Sex is a good thing. We see this from the beginning of Scripture. We also see... You know, there's no, there's no idea that God kind of walks in on them and is surprised and is like, Adam, what are you doing? That's not what happens here, right? In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that sex is portrayed as a good thing, part of his design for humanity. It's something that glorifies him. So sex is good. It's part of God's design for humanity. See this throughout Scripture. And then sex is purposeful. It's part of God's calling on humanity. So not only is it God's first words to us and his first blessing on us, but it's his first command to us. This is God's first command. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So our command as image bearers of God is to fill the earth with God's glory. We are the glory and representation of who our God is, right? This is the idea of image bearing. In the ancient Near East, they would place an image or a representative in a place where the king's rule was meant to be reflected. And so what God is saying is one of the ways in which we do this as human beings is we fill the earth by having sex and having children to obey God and glorify him and reflect who he is to all the rest of creation. This is what he means by filling the earth and subduing it. It means filling the earth with his rule and reign. And this is how we do it. There's three purposes that we see in scripture for sex. There's pleasure, procreation, and praise. So sex is a good thing. It's, it's meant for our pleasure. In Proverbs 5.19, we, we see a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Speaking to men about their wives, right? It's meant to be a good, pleasurable thing. And then we see procreation in Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. This is one of God's purposes for sex. And then we see praise and fill the earth and subdue it. What we're filling the earth with is representatives of God, okay? But in a Genesis 3 world a lot of times one or two or, or three of these things get messed up. See, we're both sufferers and sinners, and, and on the suffering side of things, there's difficulties and pain involved with sex sometimes that prevent us from enjoying this good gift of God to the glory of God from enjoying the pleasure purpose, right? 
These difficulties and pain sometimes keep us from that. Then there's things like infertility, where we're not able to procreate, right? We're not able to fulfill that part of God's purpose and design for sex. And, and see, whenever we think about our role as believers and as sufferers living in a broken, fallen world, we have to think about how God redeems things and brings restoration. And so there will be one day where the pain in our bodies is gone, when God renews the whole creation, that will be gone, and, and everything will be fruitful. But in the meantime, Christians who, who can't have physical children can have spiritual children. And I don't say that as a trite thing, right? Like, sometimes you hear that as kind of like a Christian cliche. Oh, well, you can't have kids, have spiritual kids, right? And, and sometimes that's just kind of offered to you as the first word of advice, and I'm sorry if that's been the case for you. But there's a real purpose and design to it. When we look at Genesis 1 and our command, our cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and we look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So what God gives to humanity is a command at the beginning, and then what Jesus gives to humanity, or to the renewed humanity, to believers in him as a command in Matthew 28. So both of these ideas are about filling the earth with God's glory and God's representatives, So we fill the earth at the beginning of creation with God's representatives physically, and then spiritually, those who know God, know Christ, are able to fill the earth with his representatives by making disciples. And so I have a couple family members who weren't able to have kids, and they pursued the adoption route and, and stuff, and it never worked out for them. And so what they did was they found intentional ways to invest in the lives of young people and the lives of children. And they still loved kids, and they made disciples, they made spiritual children to the glory of God and for the good of humanity. They grieved their loss and their suffering. But they glorified God even still, knowing that one day, all that has gone wrong will be made right. And then we sin against God too, right? This is another way that things have gone broken and awry. We sin against him, and so, you know, people who can have children won't. The abortion crisis, the tragedy involved there, the seeing children as a nuisance to be avoided for a long time so that you can enjoy your life. See, we misunderstand God's purposes for sex. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the ways that we have done this. But what we need to know now is that whether sufferer or sinner, whether you have made some serious wrongs, committed some serious evil acts in life, or you've experienced the evil of a broken world, there is hope to be found in the God who has made you to reflect who he is. And there is a God who understands us. Here's what we read, and we'll end with this. Talking about Jesus here in Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
What the author of Hebrews just said is we have a God who understands us. We have a God who entered into the brokenness for us. This means that whatever has gone wrong in our lives or with us, this God who has been willing to enter in in love for us is able to redeem it and restore it, and he intercedes for us. So I don't know what brokenness or what pain or what sin you're struggling with in life right now, but I know you can trust him with it. And so would you join me in prayer and would you do that right now? Lord, we acknowledge our humble need for you. We need to know you in a deeper way. We need to reflect who you are in the arenas of life that you've given us that task. So God, we pray for you to bring redemption, for you to bring forgiveness of our sins, God, that we would trust you for that. We would trust in your accomplished work for us. We pray that you bring restoration where there's been pain and suffering. God, I pray that you would help us to see your plan, to see our current trials in light of eternity and what you're doing in the renewed creation, the new heavens and the new earth. So God, help us to trust you and help us to reflect who you are. In Jesus' name.